if you've got a Bible, turn to Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. It's a very famous story um, that many of us are familiar with already. And it says this in Jonah chapter 1, verse 1. The word of the Lord came to Jonah, son of Amittai. Go to the great city of Nineveh. Everyone say Nineveh. Nineveh. Go to the great city of Nineveh and preach against it, because its wickedness has come up before me. I wonder if you, um, if you uh, would put their hands up and go, yeah, I'd like to preach against the city because they're so uh, outrageously sinful. And it goes on, verse 3. But Jonah ran away from the Lord and headed for Tarshish. He went down to Joppa where he found a ship bound for that port. After paying the fare, he went aboard and sailed for Tarshish to flee from the Lord. Everyone say flee. Flee. Um, Then the Lord sent a great wind on the sea and such a violent storm arose that the ship threatened to break up. All the sailors were afraid, and each cried out to his own God. And they threw the cargo into the sea to lighten the ship, to make it more buoyant so it might survive the storm. But Jonah had gone below deck, where he lay down and fell into a deep sleep. It's an incredible story, and we may know the next bit, which uh, is supernatural, where like uh, a fish swallows Jonah. But uh, this is the precursor to that. And so God invites Jonah to come and speak to a city. Um, God wants that city to know that the Heavenly Father has seen what they get up to and they need to turn to him, that they need to be saved. And Jonah gets a glimpse of this glorious and illustrious purpose. He has been set aside to see a city saved. And he looks at the idea and goes, no thanks, not really up for that. Do you want to find someone else? I've got better things to do. So not only does he say no thanks, uh, but he runs in the opposite direction. So uh, Nineveh is east and he runs west. And in fact, Tarshish is around 2,000 miles west. So in the end, he's ultimately trying to get 2,500 miles away from where he's supposed to stay. I mean, you can imagine some of the things that are boiling up in his soul. How am I going to find the words to confront a city with all their intelligentsia, all their culture, all the different things going on? Won't I be ignored? Won't I be snubbed? Won't I be looked down on? And uh, Probably a little undercurrent. These Ninevites deserve what they're getting. You know, they have forsaken God. They have turned to their own way. They have listened to their own hearts. They deserve what's coming. And so he has this internal monologue and decides to go the other way. And even when God is harassing him with this supernatural storm that seems to be breaking the boat apart, I really love this. Jonah is so at peace with his decision to... Uh, revolt against God, that he's asleep in the bottom of the boat. All the sailors, everyone that knows this storm, they're going, oh, we're going to die, and they're praying to row God. And Jonah is so calm that he doesn't have to do what God wants him to, that he doesn't have to go and speak to those Ninevites, that he doesn't have to do what he doesn't want to do, that he is restful and peaceful and calm. I think this is often our experience, when people start talking about that dreaded word, evangelism. We are told what others need to hear about Jesus. The Bible says we need to say it. 
preachers tell us all the time that we need to evangelize and songs tell us we need to do it as well. Yet for a whole range of reasons we say, yeah, I'm not really up for that, God. Not really up for sticking out my neck. Not really up for trying to argue with people. Not really up for uh, um, imposing my view on others, in upsetting people around me, in becoming a bit of a, uh, a social outcast. And so what we do, we find that boat to Tarshish and we look to sail away two and a half thousand miles the opposite way of the way that we apparently been called. And you know what? We find peace. We don't have to talk to people. We don't have to stick our neck out. We don't have to uh, show ourselves to be different to anyone else. Now, we have been recently spending time waiting on the Holy Spirit. We have been enjoying this gap between the resurrection and Pentecost when the Holy Spirit comes. And the idea is that we are longing for the power that Jesus promised. And I think this is one of the most important aspects of the Spirit, is this particular thing that we're talking about today. And the best example of this aspect of evangelism is seen in a disciple. His, this disciple is as useless as J Judas. You know, Judas is obviously frowned upon because obviously he betrayed Jesus. But this disciple seems to be little better than him. And listen to this moment in his life. It's not a particularly auspicious one. Um, and uh, if you turn to Mark chapter 14. Mark chapter 14, verse 66. And it says this. While, um, and his name's Simon Peter. And this is in Greek, if you are interested. While Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servants' girls of the high priest came by. When she saw Peter warming himself, she looked closely at him. You were also with that Nazarene Jesus, he said, she said. And but he denied it. I don't know what you're on. I don't know or understand what you are talking about, he said. And he went on out into the entrance. When the servant girl saw him there, she said again to those standing around him, This fellow was one of them. And again, for the second time, he denied it. After a little while, those standing near um, said to Peter, Surely you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. Peter, in not the peak, his ministry, called down curses and he swore to them, I don't know this man you are talking about. And immediately the cock crowed the second time. Peter remembered the word Jesus had spoken to him. Uh, before the cock crows twice, you will disown me three times. And he broke down and he wept. This great apostle, this man that uh, the Roman Catholic Church have revered as the origins of their uh, own church. This Apostle Peter, who goes on to do great things, he denies knowing Jesus, not once, not twice, not three times. It's not a very auspicious occasion in his life. And not only does he deny knowing Jesus, but he accompanies that with cursing his accusers. To be honest... It's a little surprising to me that there isn't a bolt of lightning coming down and striking Peter where he is there. Judas gets something like that. He gets zapped and he dies. Ananias and Sapphira, they get zapped and they die. Herod Agrippa, he does the same thing. All these guys seem to get struck down. 
for uh, 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 wretched behavior in the sight of God. And Peter seems to deserve this. But thankfully, God is a God of grace. And Peter survives. And as we read the text, we perhaps next think that he's going to be relegated like Thomas. You know he's going to be an uncomfortable or cautionary footnote. Oh, you don't want to be like Simon Peter. Or you don't want to be like Thomas. Or you don't want to be like Judas. But God hasn't finished with Peter yet. If you've got a Bible, turn to Acts chapter 2. And it says this. In verse 36. So, uh, sort of two months ago, Peter was denying that he even knew Jesus, let alone said anything uh, about him. And then this happens at the Feast of Pentecost, when the place is full of God-fearing Jews, when he's facing thousands of his peers, and he says these uh, uh, eternal words. Verse 36, therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Messiah. When the people heard this, and this is the moment where Peter's like, what is going to happen? When they heard this, they were cut to the heart. Everyone say heart. They were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter replied, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, and then he goes on, This promise is for you and your children, and are for all who are far off, whom the Lord our God will call. And with many other words... He warned them and he pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message were baptized and about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Peter goes from a wretched, foul-mouthed, back-stabbing coward to a captivating public speaker. He oversees the conversion of of 3,000 new believers. These 3,000 people hear his words and commit themselves to Jesus. They realize that Jesus is the answer to to all the Old Testament prophecies. All these things that the Jews have been longing for are answered in this man, Jesus. Peter did not learn any new techniques. He hadn't gone to a crash course on how to talk uh, to audience. He didn't find different people to speak to these were not somehow a strange new audience who found this foreigner amusing. He didn't gain any new facts. The same things he knew then were there now. And he didn't just really feel really, really guilty and was compelled by the preacher up the front. The single solitary difference was that Jesus had now risen from the dead and Peter had been baptised with the Holy Spirit. And he had been baptised at Pentecost with 120 other believers. That is the difference we have from this foul-mouthed coward to this persuasive preacher who convinces 3,000 Jews who valued and were uh, embedded in the Jewish religion that Jesus was the fulfilment of all they'd been looking for. 
I think the Holy Spirit is too often forgotten when we talk about sharing the good news. And when we forget the Holy Spirit when we're talking about sharing the good news, we forget possibly the most important element. And I want to just present two simple aspects of this that should help us. Now, we've learned in the sessions that we've done so far on tongues and on prophecy that when we ask the Holy Spirit in and he comes, he doesn't possess, possess us. We're not animated like some sort of Hollywood horror story. We aren't somehow taken over and become different people. This Holy Spirit comes and lives within us just as we were always designed to receive him and he inspires us and empowers us and we become uh, partners with God in his agenda. We don't become tools or instruments but we work in partnership with God in sympathy and in syncrasy with him. Turn your Bibles to Matthew chapter 10. Make no apologies for lots of Bible references because uh, that is the season we are in. Matthew chapter 10, verse 16. And it says this. Jesus is talking to his disciples. I am sending you out like sheep among wolves. Therefore be as shrewd as snakes and as innocent as doves. Be on your guard. Why? Because you Christians are going to be handed over to the local councils and you're going to be flogged in the synagogue. These places of power are not going to like what you have to say. On my account, you will be brought before governors and kings. You know, the most intelligent, uh, uh, the most tutored, uh, the, the most powerful people in the land. You're going to be brought to them and you're going to be witnesses to them and to the Gentiles, everyone on the face of this planet, you will be brought before because they will want to know what you believe. And it goes on. And when they arrest you, do not worry about what to say or how to say it. At that time, you will be given what to say. For it will not be you speaking but the spirit of your father speaking through you. Jesus is very blunt here. He explains that anyone that follows him will find themselves in peculiar situations. If you do not like awkward and peculiar situations, you can't be a Christian. Just won't work. If you don't like to be uh, singled out, if you don't like to be outside the herd, then you will not be able to be a Christian. You won't be able to hack the requirements made of you. If you just want to blend in, you are in trouble because you can't follow Jesus and follow the crowd. Our morals, our language and our behaviour set us apart from everyone else. You and I behave, speak and act differently. We have different values so that we stand out. We do not agree with what everyone else does. And so we get singled out for encounters that others just won't get. If we live with Jesus as the most important person in our lives, 
will be faced with all sorts of opportunities to testify. Moments where someone goes, why are you like this? Why do you make my life harder? Why do you make me feel guilty? Why do you have to oppose something that seems commonsensical? Some people will come with interest. Why do you think differently? I want to know. You seem to have your stuff together and yet you are against what everyone else thinks. And others will come with hostility. Why don't you just shut up? Why don't you just toe the line? Why don't you just keep your mouth shut? And these will be the things that you are faced with if you act as a Christian. Now, conferences, outreaches and door-to-door visits can have their place in evangelism. We Christians love a good conference. We love a good outreach. We love a good door-to-door visit. No, we often don't. And I want to just be a counter to that this morning and say God divinely directs your steps. He divinely directs your steps. He divinely orchestrates the movements of the planets And there are moments in time where each of us are given opportunities to testify. Where we have to give the reason for the hope that is within, uh, one of Peter's letters says. And so, instead of artificially forcing evangelistic moments, you know where you knock on the door... You're scared, the person you're talking is too scared, and you mumbled something about, have you found Jesus? And the other person go, I didn't know he was lost. And everyone gets a little bit awkward, where it becomes a lot more natural. Where we find the moments where God has said, here's someone that I think you should be able to talk to. And these moments where we just look and pay attention to the courses of our lives and go, I think this is a moment where I can say something. And it's not going to be weird and artificial. It's not going to be, uh, uh, it's not going to be suddenly uh, this horrible moment of prototyping. But it's going to be a natural, organic moment where someone says, why are you doing that? And you go, let me tell you why. And another truth Jesus tells us here is that we need to relax Man, we need to relax about the content and tone of our testimony. Uh, I don't think I can overemphasize enough this aspect. It is really easy to feel pressured. Someone says, why are you doing that? You know, why are you not joining the rest of the office in gossiping against this particular person? Why is your language different? Why do you give money away? Why do you not talk badly about particular groups that the rest of society will look down on? And it's easy to go, well, let me tell you about the saving blood of Jesus Christ who died on the cross for your sins so that you can enjoy eternal life in heaven. And Jesus says, no, just hang on. Other times, we can hear a particularly persuasive preacher up the front. You know, someone that's got their stuff together and has got a formula to tell others about Jesus. You go, right, I must remember. Uh, So I remember someone giving me the 
ABC of evangelism, where I would, if you just remember that ABC, though I can't remember the ABC now, um, if you remember the ABC, you'll be able to tell someone about Jesus clearly, and you'll have covered all your bases. And I think Jesus says, you know, you need to chill out a bit. And it's easy to feel, oh, I've got to come across passionate, artificially, like sort of uh, trying to uh, make a hard sell. It's easy to come across judgmental. You don't know Jesus and you're going to go to hell directly unless Jesus saves you right now. Make a decision right now. Right now. Put your hand up. I want to see that decision made for Jesus. Or we can come across academic. You know, let me give you the cerebral reasons in your head why Jesus is the Messiah and the answer to all your questions. And we can feel all these personas that different preachers and teachers um, can cause us to feel. And I think this morning that we need to sense, feel a sense of freedom on that. Jesus explains very clearly that you don't need to get everything right. You don't need to work really hard on your persuasiveness. You don't need to sound clever in your own ears. There is someone that is better equipped to give you the right words to say, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit knows you, and the Holy Spirit knows who you are talking to, and he is the by far the best um, in the best position to help you find the best words that will communicate the truth best to the person you're speaking to. There'll be particular words that just work better. There'll be particular phrases that communicate the beauty of this gospel we treasure so much in an effective way. And there are arguments that some people will be like, what? I don't even get what you're saying. I've got some good arguments in the back of my mind for the reasons of God. And do you know how many I've found have worked? None of them. It has been moments when people have been uh, made themselves vulnerable in conversation, where the Holy Spirit is already working in their lives, and that I'm just part of that process. There is not just one way to speak the good news. And it is the very best thing in the world to pray while we're talking to someone so that they get the very best opportunity to hear about Jesus in the language they get. So the first point is the Holy Spirit in you helps you. And the second point is the Holy Spirit is touching the people we're talking to as well. If you have a look at the last Bible reference, Acts chapter 16 says this. And uh, yes, it looks like we're going to get time for some worship afterwards. I've uh, stormed through the sermon. Right, so Acts chapter 16, verse 25. So, Paul and Silas, funnily enough, are in prison for their faith. They're causing trouble. They're turning other people's lives upside down. And the authorities, you know, are, let's lock these Christians up. They're a nuisance. They're causing us to follow gods that aren't our own. And so Acts chapter 16, verse 25, it says this. About midnight, Paul and Silas, who'd been arrested for being Christians, they were praying and singing hymns to God. And the other prisoners were listening to them. I would have loved to have been in that moment where the other prisoners were listening to these lunatics, Paul and Silas, 
uh, praising and praying. And so suddenly there's a violent earthquake. The foundations of the prison were shaken, it says. All at once the prison doors flew open and everyone's chains came loose. The jailer woke up and when he saw the prison doors open, um, he drew his sword he, and he was about to kill himself because the punishment for uh, losing his charges would have been death anyway. He would have been on the bound to look after them. He knew that that was the end. And it goes on. Uh, he was about to kill himself. And Paul shouted, Oi, oi, don't harm yourself, we're all here. And the jailer, he called for lights, rushed in, and he fell trembling before Paul and Silas. And listen to this. And he brought them out and asked, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? They replied, Believe in the Lord Jesus and you'll be blessed, you and your whole household. Then they spoke the word of the Lord to him and to all the others in his house. And at, the, at that hour of the night, the jailer took him immediately and washed their wounds. Then immediately he and all his household were baptized. The jailer brought them into his house and set a meal before them. He was filled with joy because he had come to believe in God, he and his whole household. And there is an excellent moment of evangelism. There is a ruthless, experienced prison guard. He knows what it takes to look after prisoners. He knows his accountability and he knows what it is to strike fear into those that he imprisons and he confesses Jesus. He did not need a polished presentation. He did not need a guest speaker, did not need a really anointed band. He did not need a confident speaker who knew the right arguments. He didn't even need a clever blow-by-blow blow account of why Jesus was Lord. There was a supernatural earthquake. There was prison doors going open, but no one dying. And then all these prisoners, who he knew should leg it the moment the doors are open, stay there under Paul and Silas's care, and it stops him in his tracks. And he goes, yeah, yeah, there's something going on here. This is not just a freak natural occurrence. There is something going on that I need to respond to and a crossroads come for him. And it's up to him what he wants to do. He can just write, get back in prison, that's the end of it. Or he can take the opportunity, and this is one of these divinely orchestrated moments that Paul and Silas are ready for and the prison guard uh, suddenly is confronted with. And the spirit works in this guy. He gives his life to Jesus and he gets baptised, and he's filled with joy. And there, this spirit that is already prompting him to ask questions like, what must I do to be saved, fills him and he suddenly goes, oh my goodness, this is quite good. I'm quite glad I made this step forward. This is a decision I'm pleased to make. The subject of faith is sensitive one. People can be very private and very guarded. We live in a society where there are almost as many views as there are people. And 
we have come to a place as a society where you do what's good for you and I do what's good for me because that's the only way that the society can function without sort of wars breaking out and us having fist fights with each other. It is a big thing to talk about what you believe. And it is easy for you and I to be put off by that. Well, I don't want to impose my views on them. I don't want to uh, pretend I'm better than them. I don't want to... Uh, um, I don't want to force an awkward situation. Or we can go the other way, where I have to argue harder and have better reasons and make sure they feel uh, the heat of hell under their feet. This is a thing. We can also feel that we're just selling eternal life. You know, like pie in the sky, something for later. You know, you, what you do, you need to turn yourself to Jesus... And this life is just going to be really rubbish because not everyone's going to resent you for loving Jesus. But it's okay. In the end, you get eternal life. And everyone's like, yeah, I'm not too sure about that deal. And that eternal life can seem a bit unreal, a bit intangible. Especially when we live in a secular society that doesn't believe in an afterlife. Generally speaking, if, you, if I ask my people uh, that I work with, um, I would imagine most of them don't believe there's anything after this life. And so the idea of uh, there's actually a heaven and a hell, they'd probably think that's absolutely ridiculous. We need to remember that the Spirit doesn't just touch us to help us share the good news of Jesus, but he supernaturally touches our audience too, the people we're speaking to. We are not speaking to animals or dogs or bricks the spirit touches the people that we talk to the when we share jesus with someone that's probably the tip of the iceberg the spirit has probably been working in that person's life for years before they came to you we have got people in our congregation who didn't grow up in christian uh, families and they have these stories of the moment when they saw Jesus as the light when they first heard the gospel that's not actually when they first felt the hand of God on their lives they will tell you of other moments that led them up to that place whether it is a moment uh, uh, of harrowing vulnerability where they realized that they needed help or that something about the secular or uh, sort of other worldview was just not up to scratch, that somehow everything they believed didn't account for everything that they thought was important. And when we say something about Jesus, that's just the tip of the iceberg. The Spirit has been working in them long up to that point. And so we can feel a little less worried about what we're going to say because God's been at work in them for quite a bit of time before they get to you and he's still got a long way to go yet with them. You know, you are just uh, a, a point in time. An important one, but you're a point in time. And I also want to increase our expectation when we talk about Jesus. When something happens here, you know, uh, someone's sick, got a friend in hospital right now with cancer and we pray Jesus save them and all the WhatsApp messages go around and we pray for it, pray for ourselves, we pray for our community, Lord heal them. Uh, the book of James talks about that as a healthy thing but most miracles that we find in the Gospels 
is those moments where someone says, oh, I'm not too sure about this Jesus, and then something happens. Something miraculous happens. And we can have a degree of expectation that those moments where people are becoming Christians are often the moments when we see miracles happen. That God says, you know what, let me make it as easy as possible to let you believe in me and my son Jesus by let me changing your life beyond all recognition. And so you have these moments of healing and you have these moments of deliverance. Uh, suddenly, lifelong struggles are suddenly touched. And people go, oh, this Jesus is a lot better than I thought. It's not just a nice idea, but he makes today better for me. And even more than healings and miracles and that sort of thing, we can have a hope that Jesus touches their soul. It is not an argument that brings people into heaven. It is that touch of the Spirit that makes them born again. And when we talk, we make this room for the Spirit to touch them. And suddenly they go, Oh, I haven't felt joy for a long time like that. In fact, I have never felt that sense of elation in my heart up to this point. You are saying something that I have never encountered before. And it is very common for people turning to turn to Jesus to experience joy, to experience forgiveness. Different things have different potency with different people. Sometimes people haven't been able to forgive themselves or have been wrecked by being unable to forgive someone else and suddenly that is, that is broken and they go, oh, that's good. This good news is not just something in the mind, it's something in the heart as well. They can feel love. You know, if they've had a hard upbringing, if their parents have been bad or absent, um, suddenly something can come and they go, oh, I needed that more than I could possibly explain and kindness as well and so uh, the only thing so it's just one thing really I want to say this morning evangelism shouldn't be some terrible boot camp that we're all legging it away from as fast as we can evangelism is a series of divine opportunities sometimes they come like buses loads at once and sometimes they're a little sparse but nevertheless, we keep on the lookout for them. And when we find them, we don't have to download Matthew, Mark, Luke and John into their lives. We say what the Spirit inspires us to say. Because we need to be reminded of this. People in desperate need of this. And the most common thing is, you know what, because they're going to go to hell without Jesus. But there's also people in desperate need of it because of their souls now. Their minds and hearts are a wreck. We've found all sorts of problems exposed by the pandemic. As people haven't been able to cope and process with all the changes. And we have this answer in Jesus that helps. And an answer that Jesus that helps not just for now, but for eternity. It's a beautiful story you all have. It's a beautiful truth that you all keep. It's a beautiful uh, fact that you can all share with one another if you get the opportunity. Let me, let me close my sermon in prayer and then we're going to have five minutes for a song, if that's all right, ladies. Did you want to come up while I close in prayer?
Heavenly Father, we thank you for sending Jesus. We thank you that he's the fulfillment of all the Old Testament. We thank you that he's the fulfillment of every human uh, expectation. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would be good at sharing the good news of Jesus. That we would uh, rely on your words and your reasoning and your arguments and your persuasive phrases. And Lord God, we pray for those people that we get to talk to, even this week, that you would prime them. That you would make them ready to receive the things that we have to say, that you have to say through us. And Lord God, we pray for miracles. We pray for healings. We pray for deliverance. We pray for uh, encounters with joy and forgiveness and love. God, we pray that this experience of sharing the good news wouldn't be... Uh, the worst thing about our faith, but it would be the best thing. Lord God, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.